Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Mini Wikipedia, and today I want to chat about the risk of hypophosphatemia and an iron infusion. So this has come up a couple of times actually in my clinic and the first I heard about it was when a friend of mine posted on her social media channel that after having an iron infusion where she expected to feel really great in a week's time, she felt even worse. And then upon further investigation, it was revealed that due to the iron infusion, she now had dangerously low phosphate levels. So first of all, I just want to chat a little bit about who gets or what criteria sort of determines who might get an iron infusion and how to get it. And then I want to chat about what are normal phosphate levels, what some of the symptoms are of hypophosphatemia. I think I've got that right. Uh, and then also how doctors miss it and then what, you know, what can be done about it. So in New Zealand, the eligibility criteria for receiving a funded iron infusion, which is specifically ferric carboxymaltose, uh, the brand name of that is Ferinject, is determined based on specific special authority criteria. So the funding applies to patients who meet certain conditions related to iron deficiency anemia and can be accessed in both community and hospital settings. Generally speaking, patients with iron deficiency, anemia, and a serum ferritin level of less than or equal to 20 micrograms per litre can apply for an initial special authority approval, which is valid for three months. If they have been compliant with oral iron treatment, such as you know, just typical iron supplements, and that's been proven ineffective, or if that iron treatment has resulted in dose-limiting intolerance. So you have really bad GI issues, you cannot tolerate the iron supplements, they will look for an alternative. Also, um, someone may be considered eligible if there is real need for a rapid correction of anemia. This is in the guidelines, and in my head I'm like, who wouldn't be in need of that? Because life is just so much better when you're not anemic. Anyway, not any better, but better for you. There are also specific conditions for that special authority approval. So for patients with a serum ferritin um, above 20 micrograms per litre, subsidised treatment can be recommended by an internal medicine doctor or an obstetrician or a gynaecologist or an anaesthetist. And this just allows for that broader access under specific clinical circumstances. This might be someone with symptomatic heart failure, chronic kidney disease stage three or more, or active inflammatory bowel disease, where clearly oral um, iron supplementation is unlikely to be successful. And so the cost of the iron infusion appointment might be around $175, which includes the initial consult and the infusion itself. If the patient meets the funding criteria for fear inject, the medication can be obtained from the pharmacy with a funded prescription. But if the patient doesn't meet the criteria, it could be cost, cost an additional three or four hundred dollars. So you can see that it's not that easy to get an iron infusion. And in fact, iron infusion does come with certain risks, as we're about to talk about, or just considerations, not risks. I think considerations. So when someone does receive an iron infusion, there's the possibility for the condition known as hypophosphatemia. And this is when the phosphate levels in the blood drop to dangerously low levels. And in New Zealand, the sort of normal phosphate levels in the blood expressed in millimoles per litre does vary by age group, but for adults 18 and older, the normal range is 0.75 to 1.5 
millimoles per litre. Levels below this range would indicate low phosphate levels. And low phosphate levels can happen for a few reasons, and it's related to how iron and phosphate metabolism are interconnected in the body. So you get increased erythropoiesis, which is when the iron infusions stimulate the production of red blood cells. And this process, erythropoiesis, requires phosphate. So as the body ramps up red blood cell production in response to newly available iron, it can consume phosphate at a higher rate than usual. This potentially leads to that decrease in those phosphate levels in the blood, which would be lower. Certain types of intravenous iron preparations, such as the ferrin inject, which is a ferric carboxymaltose, can interact with phosphate in the blood, leading to the formation of insoluble complexes. These complexes are then removed from circulation, effectively lowering the available phosphate in the blood. And also there may be a shift in phosphate distribution. So the iron infusion can alter the balance of various hormones and factors that regulate mineral and bone metabolism, including phosphate. So it can lead to a temporary shift of phosphate from the blood into cells or bone, reducing its plasma concentration. So low phosphate levels can range from mild to severe and may be asymptomatic or present with various symptoms depending on the severity of the phosphate depletion. And I have to say that the most recent presentation of it for someone I've been working with, it sounded horrendous. She said that she expected to feel so much better and she felt a thousand times worse. So those symptoms of severe hypophosphatemia include muscle weakness and pain, bone pain and fragility, respiratory failure, irregular heartbeats, i.e. arrhythmias, numbness and neurological disorders, and immune dysfunction. And you can see actually that these do seem very similar to anemia, particularly that muscle weakness, the fatigue, the respiratory failure, or problems with being out of breath. So you can understand why if this occurs to someone after an iron infusion, you might even be thinking, gosh, did that even work for me? In cases where the phosphate levels do drop to dangerously low levels, it's important to monitor and manage the levels carefully. So treatment may involve oral or intravenous phosphate supplementation, depending on the severity of the low phosphate levels. And also, of course, close monitoring of the patient's response to the therapy. And in the case of my client, she went back to her doctor after a week to tell her what had happened. And the doctor was like, I'm not sure what's going on. She had Googled it and said, I think it's my phosphate. And the doctor was like, I don't know. And then when they got the results and saw that it was, she sent her immediately to hospital. Interestingly, when you look on the interwebs with recommendations from the World Wide Web and all of its um, genius, there is a recommendation to drink Coca-Cola or other cola beverages for resolving these low phosphate levels because these drinks contain phosphoric acid which can increase phosphate levels in the body. Albeit, remember, you're likely on some phosphate supplements as well. So colas are often suggested as a quick and accessible source of phosphate for people experiencing mild cases of low phosphate, especially when medical treatment isn't immediately necessary or as a supplementary measure. But it is important to um, remember that the actual amount of phosphate in cola drinks may not be sufficient to correct significant phosphate deficiencies, especially in the case of low phosphate levels. And the bioavailability of phosphate from cola is also not as well defined as that from dietary sources or supplements designed for medical use. So understandably, this would not be my first choice for anyone who had this issue. Thankfully, though, I mean, it's, this is a medical condition, and I think doctors who are in the know will be well-versed with um, what they should be doing. Also, another 
sort of risk is obviously sugar and calories. So cola drinks can be high in sugar and calories, which may not be suitable for everyone, especially people who have um, metabolic concerns um, and all the things that occur with fluctuating blood sugars because you've mainlined sugar into your bloodstream. Now, apparently Coke Zero, Diet Coke do have measurable amounts of phosphoric acid in them as well, just not quite as much as your Coca-Cola. And if you go looking on the interwebs, it'll tell you that a 12 ounce fluid ounce can of cola contains about 37 milligrams of phosphorus or the same size serving of a diet cola contains 32 milligrams not that different and just so you have an appreciation for foods containing phosphorus we're talking predominantly like your meats like chicken and turkey so an 85 gram serving might have 194 to 196 milligrams of phosphorus actually much more than that cola Ditto with pork contains around 230 milligrams. Organ meats have quite a bit of additional available phosphorus, as does seafood. So it just gives you a, an appreciation for the fact that all these real foods also contain highly bioavailable phosphorus, which is actually preserved when you cook it. So you don't necessarily need to go running for that cola. The one thing to be mindful of, and the reason why you want to closely monitor phosphate levels, is because you know you need a sweet spot in the body, and the body does regulate its minerals really um, quite well. So if you're taking on board quite a bit of phosphate or too much phosphate, you can also it can also be problematic. So high levels of phosphate can lead to an imbalance between calcium and phosphate in the body, which causes calcium to precipitate out of the blood and deposit in soft tissues, leading to calcification in areas such as kidneys, blood vessels, and the heart. Bone and mineral disorders, because you've got that leaching of calcium, and it can also disrupt the regulation of the parathyroid hormone, vitamin D, and calcium, potentially leading to secondary conditions. And while mildly high phosphate levels may not cause immediate symptoms, if you get severe elevations, it can lead to muscle cramps, irritability, and other related conditions. So the body is very good and works very hard to regulate our minerals and our electrolytes. So this is just a really good example of it. So you might be wondering, why didn't the doctor mention it or pick it up? And there are several pretty legitimate reasons, really. So is it, there is a low incidence. So whilst, you know, I've had a handful of cases of this over the last couple of years, it's not a common side effect for all types of iron infusions or for all patients. So the physicians may not, they might just prioritize discussing more common or severe side effects and risks. There are time constraints. So, you know, appointments are what, 15, 20 minutes, and it can limit the amount of information they're able to convey. Doctors will just probably assume that the person in front of them is low risk. And so then likely not to bring up something to sort of of concern if the patient's going to get overly anxious about something that might not happen, or the doctor themselves may already have in place protocols to assess for risk of this happening after the procedure. So, you know, they may get them back in within five days or seven days to measure phosphate levels, particularly to see if anything is amiss there. And then it would come up if something was. And of course, you know, clinicians often have to balance that need for, in, for informing patients of the risk versus overwhelming them with information that it might even be unnecessary. So they may choose to focus on what the patient needs to know to follow through with the treatment and aftercare instructions effectively. 
But of course, you know, it's important for everyone to feel empowered when they're, they're sitting in their doctor's office. So, you know, if you're in the position where you may need or be wondering whether an iron infusion is right for you, then absolutely bring this up with your doctor to ensure that there is monitoring in place. And there are a few things which may give insight into who might be at risk of developing these, these low phosphate levels following an iron infusion. Baseline phosphate levels, so checking a patient's baseline phosphate levels before administering it, can help identify individuals who may already have low phosphate levels or those who are at the lower end of the normal range, making them more susceptible to developing the condition. As I said, the type of iron preparation. So some are more likely to cause low phosphate than others. For example, the iron carboxymaltose and ferric derisomaltose have been associated with higher incidence compared to other formulations. And this is the one, the fear inject in New Zealand is the carboxymaltose. Patients with conditions that affect phosphate absorption or utilisation, such as chronic kidney disease, malabsorption syndromes like inflammatory bowel or celiac, or previous history of low phosphate might be at an increased risk. And individuals with poor nutritional status or specific dietary deficiencies may have lower baseline levels of phosphate, making them more vulnerable to developing the condition. And, you know, I was just talking about where we find high amounts of absorbable phosphate in the diet, which is, of course, from sort of animal protein, uh, organ meats, seafood, things like that. So um, that's something to consider. Certain medications can affect phosphate levels, including diuretics, antacids, and insulin. So patients taking these medications may have an altered risk profile and the risk might also depend on the total dose of the iron administered and the frequency of infusions. So it makes sense that the higher the doses or the more frequent administration, you're going to get that increased risk of those low phosphate levels. So to mitigate these risks, you want that pre-treatment assessment where you assess these things and you evaluate the patient's medical history, current medications, nutritional status. You, where possible, you select an iron formulation with the lower risk of causing low phosphate levels. And then, of course, you, mo you have close monitoring of these levels before and after the infusion, particularly in patients identified as being higher risk, which can help catch and address these low phosphate um, levels. So I just thought it was really interesting because I had the conversation about iron infusion with, you know, um, several clients over the years. And that GPs don't sort of discuss it, which which is probably not a bad, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just good to be aware that this can happen because you can get a real fright, not only a fright, like you can get um, quite severely sick when this occurs. So being forward with the conversation initially, if this is you going in for an iron infusion, understanding your risk um, and then just keeping an eye on it post your infusion, I think would be um, quite a good idea. All right, team. So that is low phosphate levels, and hypophosphatemia, hypophosphatemia, I'm so bad with my words, anyway, that's all right though, uh, if you have any questions or concerns or just anything really, why don't you hit me up, I'm on Instagram, Twitter and threads, at Mickey Willardin, I'm on Facebook, at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or head to my website mickeywillardin.com and book a one-on-one -on -one call with me and we can discuss this or anything related to your nutrition. All right team, you have a great day. Mm -hmm.